Hello, everybody. Welcome to another online service. So good to be with you. Hey, let's just get straight into the time of worship. How's it going, church? Welcome to an online worship service. It is a communion weekend, so if you would like to pause your device and go obtain some kind of communion element, some combination of the bread and the cup so that you can join us in a few minutes in communion, we would love that. In the meantime, we are going to let this band rip with an awesome worship song. We are made alive in Christ. Let's sing about it right now. You guys ready? Here we go.
Well, as I mentioned, it's a communion weekend, so if I may read to you from the scripture from Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Um, sometimes at this church, when we're preparing for communion, we, we give a caution because in, in other parts of scripture, there is a caution about, you know, communion's not just for everybody. You don't take it because, you, you know, it's casual or whatever. You take it because you have a, a saving relationship with Christ Jesus. But this weekend, rather than just focusing on the, the prohibitions from communion, I want to focus on who is it for? And the answer is it's for everyone that reads those words and it echoes deep in their spirit as truth. If you can listen to what I just said in the scripture and say, yes, that blood is what covers my sin, then this is for you. Communion is for those who can read through this and hear these words and answer, yes, yes, the blood of Christ is what I'm trusting for the forgiveness of my sins. Not myself, not other people, not what people think of me online, nothing, just the blood of Christ. It's for people who can look at this scripture and say, yes, the body of Christ was broken and then knit back together and raised from the dead and he lives in heaven and now the church is the body of Christ and I get to belong to that. Yes, I want that. Communion is for you. It's not about how much money you have or don't have. It's not about your status in the culture. It's not about that at all. You can come to the communion table completely authentically and wholly as you are and the Lord Jesus will receive you. Let us confess our sins. Let us sing this song. Let us, at the end of it, take communion together. Here we go. sadness from wherever you've been come broken hearted let a rescue begin come find your mercy oh sinner come kneel earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal so lay down your burdens, lay down your shame, all who are broken, lift up your face.
table. I hope you can bring yourself fully to this moment because this represents the body of Christ. It was broken for you. It was broken for me. It was knit together and raised on the third day. And the Lord sits at the right hand of the father, preparing a place for us. And we are his body on earth. Eat and remember what Jesus did. Jesus said that in this cup represents the blood that was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I don't know why it moves me so, but I like to point out that this cup represents every sin that has ever been committed, was just committed, and will ever be committed. The sacrifice of God himself on the cross was enough. His blood spilled was enough. We can stop striving. It's done. We're forgiven. We can live in peace and in joy and following him all the way home. Drink and remember the cost that was paid for your life by Jesus. To lay down in your burdens, lay down in your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. Thank you so much, worship team. Again, hello. It is great to be with you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a few announcements for you guys today. The first is I just wanted to let you know about our baptisms that we had last week. We had beach baptisms last week at Zuma Beach. It was such a good time. We had 10 baptisms. It was such a sweet time. A bunch of students were there getting baptized. So, so 
Good. That was last weekend. So now looking ahead to the fall, we are like ready to hit the ground running. So can I tell you about a couple of options that we have for Bible studies coming up here in the fall? For the gentlemen, we've got a Tuesday morning study at 8 a.m. We've got a Friday morning study at 6.30 a.m., which is going to be online via Zoom. So if you're in person, Tuesday mornings at 8 or online, 6.30 Friday morning. Ladies, you guys have a bunch of options as well. Tuesday mornings, Wednesday mornings for the moms, Wednesday evenings, Zoom online, Thursday morning, precept study. The precepts are starting this week. All the other ladies starting, uh, lady studies are starting the following week. Man, just so much going on. If you want more details, I know that I just kind of rapid fired at you. Please go online on the website and you can check out all the details of what is more entailed with those studies. Our Caneo Valley Meal Program is also coming up next Monday, September 13th. If you're interested in providing a meal for that, we'd love to have you do that. You can register for that online as well. And finally, my last announcement is September, I am dubbing personally, Month of the Life Group. Month of the Life Group. Uh, we have talked about life groups here at the church uh, a number of different times, they've just, like, the conversation has come up over the last few months, and just talking about how important life groups are. They are so, so valuable. Church should not be a place where it's just coming and hanging out on Sunday, catching a sermon, catching some music, and then heading out. Man, church needs to be so much more. We need each other. We need other people involved in our lives, genuinely knowing what's going on in our lives, and able to spur us on um, to, man, just encourage us and be involved. We shouldn't be doing lives in pews, but rather in circles. Um, so, my hope is that this push that we're kind of making for life groups is really just giving opportunities for people to, to join and be a part of a life group and not a pressure thing. Um, we just think it's really, really valuable. Um, kind of our hope, man, if we had it our way, every single person in our church would be involved in a group, either a men's group, a women's group, or a life group for their family. So uh, my ask is just to kind of prayerfully consider and thinking through having a conversation with your spouse, man, what makes sense in this season of life? Would it be a life group where we can all go and be involved in this together? Would it be a men's group for, for uh, the man? Would it be a women's group for the woman? But just prayerfully considering what that looks like here in this upcoming season. Uh, as I was even thinking, man, this doesn't need to be like an everyday sort of group or even an every week group. Um, you guys can kind of figure out once we get people settled in groups, figure out what that looks like, how often they meet. Our group personally, we meet once a month, everybody all together. And then once a month, the guys hang out while the ladies watch all the kids. And once a month, the ladies hang out while the guys watch all the kids. So we get together multiple times throughout the month. It's a sweet, uh, sweet thing that we've got going. All that to say is there are lots of different options and we would just love to get you plugged in. And the way that we can best do that, we've created a little ABF life group questionnaire, which is online. So you can even use a 
another device right now and go onto the Agora Bible website and check out the ABF Life Group questionnaire. Fill it out with lots of good information on here if you're interested in attending, if you're interested in hosting at your home. We're going to definitely need some life group leaders, people to facilitate the conversation and the discussion. Um, so if you're interested in that, please let us know. And then obviously we've got men's group only, women's only. If you're interested in online, in person, all the things, go and fill that out. And we would love to get you plugged into a life group here in the fall. The ask is for getting involved starting here in the fall and going through the school year. And then after that, we can reevaluate and we'll put, make another push uh, next year so you're not committing for life, even though it is called a life group. But that's because we're doing life together. That's the whole point. So I know that was a lot, but man, we just really wanted to, uh, to get some good information out there. Go ahead and register for that. Church, thank you so much for continuing to give and support uh, ABF. We love you so much for that. You can give online, mail in a check, tons of ways to do that. Um, we love you guys. Again, if there's any way that we could be praying for you, go ahead and text those requests to 97,000. Otherwise, hey, we've got Mr. Pastor John coming up to preach. He has two more messages for us here at the end uh, of this year. So this is his second to last this year. I know he'll be back in the future up uh, filling the pulpit for sure. Um, but man, welcome up Pastor John with a sweet message for us today. Well, thank you, Josh. I am so looking forward to this message. You got to get your Bible out, get your, your notes out. If you haven't downloaded them from uh, the website or you've just got to dial in today because we are talking about this topic, Thriving in Babylon. Turn to Daniel chapter one. Now, Thriving in Babylon is the title of a, a favorite book of mine by Larry Osborne, but it's this idea that it should come as no surprise to us as Christ followers that we're living in an increasingly hostile culture and specifically hostile to the Judeo-Christian value system that we hold so carefully. And so the problem or the question is how do you engage as a Christ follower, as a Christian, when a culture seems to be saying, stop, I don't wanna hear anymore, or when the culture is moving from tolerance to the cancel culture, or I'm not sure about this at all. And in fact, these Christianity culture clashes go on more and more as we go through life. And so I believe that this isn't anything new. The, the timeless principles in the book of Daniel, and we're only gonna get to unpack one chapter of it, we can glean those from this book. And in fact, this idea of living in a godless environment, I think, is the primary theme of the book. It's not just a book about prophecy. It's not just a book about integrity. It's not a book where you find your uh, vegetarian Daniel, you know, eating plan. It is a relevant book because it's the template about how Christianity intersects with a culture that is hostile. And so, let's jump right in. Uh, look at your notes here. The first point is we see the conquest. God is still in charge, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. In other words, they lost the battle. 
And with that, some of the, the vessels of the house of the Lord, and he brought all this stuff uh, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here's the backstory. God had repeatedly, over and over again, <clears throat> warned Judah, you gotta get your act together. Didn't they learn any lessons from three and a half centuries earlier when the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC to Assyria? And here now Babylon is knocking on their door in 586 BC. And this guy is tough because God says, look it, we're going to have a purge here and you better get your act together. But the problem is uh, they just were so prideful. They rejected God's overtures. They didn't listen to the prophets and God brought down this savagely wicked uh, Babylonian siege to the city and they ultimately were conquered. They raided the temple, they took all the good stuff, and they took hostage the best and the brightest, including Daniel and his four friends, who we'll see in just a moment, and they hauled them off to Babylon to systematically try to brainwash them and convert them. Now, think about it. This isn't Daniel's fault. No fault of his own. He is caught up in this between these two warring nations, and he's the guy caught in the middle with his buddies. And so... The principle is no matter what is happening around you, God is still in control. Regardless of the external, remember the eternal. See, listen about, think about this. Daniel never complained. He never whined. He never moaned. He never caved in. He knew his God was in ultimate control. And you're going to see this principle carried out throughout the book. He had confidence in God's character. When we combat a, a culture that oftentimes is hostile to us, we got to have confidence in God's character. Now, Daniel realized that God had allowed it. This is the interesting thing. He knew that God had allowed his country to be, to, to be conquered by Babylon. And so he saw everything through the lens that God was in charge. He was allowing it. That's a tough pill to, swell, uh, to swallow because sometimes we wonder, is God really in charge? Now, that doesn't mean that we're just kind of some cosmic puppet. We do have choices to live within God's will, and we're going to see Daniel make some of those choices. And so how about us? How do we believe or give lip service to this idea of God's sovereignty? Do we really believe he's in control? I mean, many of you have just been up in arms about all that's gone on over the last 18 months with COVID and government uh, regulations and all the divisions in the church over politics and vaccines and masks and a host of other topics. But through it all, God is in charge of this postmodern culture that we find ourselves in. So let's look at the command. It's all about systematic indoctrination in verses 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the, what a, a name, the king of the eunuchs, which you don't want to get into that. That's just bad news. To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed, endowed with the, the knowledge and understanding learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, it does remind me of a funny story. Some of you know that Doug Flagg is the chairman of our elder board, and he may or may not have done this, but we're going to go with it. 
He's in the library at Biola when he was in college, and he sees a group of, of young ladies over there, and he, he's eyeing who is now his wife, Sabrina. He thinks, I'm going to impress her. I'm going to just write a note. And he, he writes a note, and he, he actually copies Daniel 1.4. Youth without a blemish, good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and competent to stand the... I mean, he just lays it on thick. He writes a note, and he has one of his buddies just kind of walk it over to that other table where the girls are at, and his buddy hands it to Sabrina. Sabrina looks at it. She smiles. She looks at him. She gets out a piece of paper. She writes a note back. And this is so junior high, but they're at Biola. And the bottom line is, uh, she sends a note back with one of her girlfriends over to Doug. Doug is so excited. This is working. And so he looks at it, and he sees that she's quoting Psalm 116.11. And it says, and he looked it up, and in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. You see... That verse, I've been wanting to use that story forever. You'll have to ask Doug whether it really happened. Now, some commentators feel that Daniel and his Jewish friends, they could have been as young as 15-year-olds. They could have been in our student ministry, right? What, what they end up having him do is they uh, uh, enroll in the Royal Babylonian Academy where they're not only going to be taught two new languages, but they're going to be subjected to its curriculum steeped in Babylonian philosophy, religion, magic, astrology, their uh, science, medicine, just to name a few. And remember, uh, Babylon is where modern day Iraq is today. And so their strategy is pretty simple. Let's capture the next generation. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar did something what Alexander the Great did many, many uh, later times. These guys were the nobility. They were smart. They were influencers. If they were TikTok folks, they would have followers, Instagram, out the wazoo. The bottom line, no, they probably would have nothing to do with any of those things. But they, they were good looking. They were top of the class. And he knows that if he really wants to build a lasting empire, he's got to train them, uh, convert them, because they're going to have to go and manage their own people uh, when someday he, if he wants to keep control of this kingdom. So these guys are being groomed for government positions, and they're, they're being bred so they would influence their countrymen to abandon Jehovah God and ultimately capitulate in their faith, and his plan to brainwash them and to use them as pawns. By the way, that is not a surprise, right? That is not a surprise. We've seen that same thing in the last 40 to 60 years in our own secular university system. There's another great book. I mentioned the first one. Here's another one. It's called The Daniel Code. And um, I want to read something from this because when did this happen in our country? When did this kind of systematic brainwashing happen? I want to read back to you. I think it began back in 1933 with the Humanist Manifesto when it sent out its very plain objectives. Let me read. Its stated goal was to bring young people to deny the deity of God and the biblical account of creation. It set out to re-educate young people to the fact that moral values should be self-determined and situational. In other words, there's no absolute truth. We've been dealing with the consequences of that philosophy for many, many years. And so our approach, by the way, shouldn't be any different here in the church. Our student ministry ought to be raising up the best and the brightest as they send them off to college, equipped to know what they believe and why they believe it. And I'm so 
I'm so proud of our youth ministry that Chris and Josh have kind of laid out for us. In fact, here's principle number two. If you want to stand up to a godless culture, you have to immerse yourself in God's word, not be indoctrinated by the culture. Biblical immersion, not cultural immersion. Well, Here's what the, the king's program was, the concept, a three-year program, verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that, that the king ate, of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. That's like a MDiv, a seminary degree. And at the end of that time, they were stand before the king. Now, part of the plan is they're gonna get all these special privileges to eat at the king's table, to fatten them up, to entice them, to bribe them, to, to cooperate. The problem is we're going to see that Daniel doesn't want to go with this plan. So they're taken from their homes in Judah. They're transplanted into a new culture. They're given new homes, a new diet, and we're going to see in a moment that's going to become a problem. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat at the king's table. I've never sat at the king's table, but I've sat at the training table for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Years ago, I got to do a pro football chapel, and after I spoke, they invited me to brunch. I am telling you, it was a foodie's dream. It, and I'm not a foodie. I just like food. The bottom line is, I mean, there are thick T-bone steaks. There were all the eggs you could eat. That was so much food and it was so good. And those guys were so big and they ate so much. That was an experience. Well, imagine having all that and then throw in the whole wine thing on top of it. So we've identified that these guys are the, the next generation. He's going to indoctrinate them, brainwash them, educate them. And the three-year curriculum is as this heavy dose of, of language acquisition, so they would forget their mother term, astrology, demonology, uh, and on and on. They're going to graduate with a master's degree in the occult, essentially. And so you can see the plan was to change their language, to change their literature, to change their lifestyle, and ultimately they're going to change their loyalties. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because Babylon is always a biblical metaphor for all that is wicked and evil. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was this ruthless, godless, narcissistic, hot-headed, impulsive, murderous egomaniac. How's that for a list of adjectives to describe your leadership style? But I think the one that is so... Uh, pervasive is he's, he was vain. He was arrogant. He builds this, later on he builds this 90 foot statue and says everybody's got to bow down to it. And we think we have it tough. It does remind me of this impulsivity that ne uh, Nebuchadnezzar has. It kind of reminds me of this story of this kind of hot tempered kind of impulsive CEO. It, it, this company has a shakeup. They bring in this new CEO and he gets a tour of the facilities and he, he knows he's got to shake things up and he, he sees this room full of workers kind of standing around and he's going to show them that he means business. And so he walks up to this guy and says, hey, how much money do you make a week? The guy, the young guy is kind of surprised, kind of looks around sheepishly and, and says, well, uh, I make $300 a week. Why? Well, the CEO then, you know, dishes out 12 $100 bills. Here, here's uh, your severance pay for, for a month now. Get out and don't come back. So he's looking around like, ah, I've made my statement, right? And so he looks around, he, he pulls one of his, his aides to the side and says, hey, what, what did that guy do anyway? Well, he, he was just standing around. And his aide just kind of looked sheepishly and looked down without giving me any eye contact. He says, yeah, he was the pizza delivery guy at, at Domino's. 
You see, Nebuchadnezzar was kind of that impulsive kind of guy, hot-headed to the nth degree, which you would see later in this book. Well, who are these candidates that are going to be indoctrinated? Who are the four dudes? Look at verses 6 and 7. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Remember, that's the messianic line. And the chief of the eunuchs, here he is again, gave them names. They changed their names. Changed their names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Which, by the way, we seem to remember those names. We don't remember their, their Israeli names or their Jewish names. In fact, my parents, when we told me that story and they put me to bed as a kid, uh, and we got to Abednego, they changed it and to bed you go. Uh, bad joke, I get it. But the bottom line is they changed their names so they would forget their spiritual heritage. It was part of their forget who you are campaign. By the way, here's a principle. You can never forget who you are if you're going to stand for God. Don't let anybody rip that out of you. You know who you are. Remember who you are. And so their name change is very interesting because each of those other names were rooted in Yahweh, this monotheistic God that they believed, not this polytheistic uh, set of gods that the Babylonians believed in. And each of their names had a reference to God. Either the syllable El, E-L, from Elohim, or Yah, from Yahweh, and their names were meant to remind them that they belong to God. Believer, you belong to God. I belong to God. We are His, and we best not forget that. So they needed to kind of blur their, their past and push them towards this Babylonian way. And this is the last part of the change. Language, literature, lifestyle, and now their loyalties. But names mean something. Names mean something. Daniel means God is my judge, where Belteshazzar is Bel's prince. It was the title of their demonic-inspired guard, Marduk. It's like having your son named go from, you were called Christian, to, you know, Satan's prince, right? Uh, how about Hananiah, the Lord shows grace, or some say it means beloved of our Lord, to Shadrach, the command of Aku, one of the many Babylonian gods. Uh, Mishael, uh, who is like God, to Meshach, who is like Aku. And then Azariah, God is my help, versus Abednego, servant of Nego, another Babylonian god. So much, what must have felt like for Daniel? He's the kind of a guy that was probably voted most likely to succeed. Uh, he, he came from this high status family. Think of maybe in our recent political era, the Kennedy family from the, from the 60s. He's, got, he's a handsome dude. He's uber intelligent. For you students who are listening to this, he had a 4.6 grade average, and he, had not, he took nine AP classes before he graduated. He was headed to Stanford, MIT, you name it, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, quote unquote. He was devoted to God, never missed a day of synagogue. He, he had this promising future career in Judah, not in Babylon. And all of this gets turned upside down. He never expected to end up in Babylon. You know what? Some of you have woken up today and said, I didn't expect to be living in Babylon. Now, for some of you, it's very political. It's very much what's going on in our culture. You, and you're wondering what's going on in the USA. But I think some of you are living in Babylon because you've allowed your mind to believe that God has somehow abandoned you. 
And so this relationship that turns sour, the career ambition that just never seemed to work out, the prayer request that doesn't get answered, the one who loves you has hurt you deeply, your health is failing miserably, and now you've kind of put your own, you put yourself into your own Babylon because you wonder if God knows. And worst of all, you wonder if he even cares. You see, Daniel must have thought, my name means God is my my, my justice, he is just. Could you see him asking himself, maybe in the darkness of the, of the night, where's my justice? This is not what I bargained for. And so what I'd like to you reflect on for a moment is when you find yourself in your Babylon, whether literally, quote unquote, maybe in how you feel about our country, or maybe in this world that gets turned upside down and maybe not to your own doing. What day, it's not if day, when that day comes, how will you respond? Well, we'll see how he responds. The whole rest of the chapter, and we'll have to go a little more quickly here, is in verses 8 to 21, we'll see the conflict. And he essentially says, I will not concede or I will not compromise. And let's look at the request in verses 8 and 9. So you can see that not only do you have to have confidence in God's character, you have to have courage in your convictions. By the way, those two principles are seen throughout the book. Throughout the book. The request in verses 8 and 9, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. He resisted. He said no. He took a stand. There's a difference between erosion and earthquakes. He was not going to let this happen to subtly erode his faith. Now, most of you said, of all the things to push back on, how about that demonic curriculum and this astrology course and the three years of trying to brainwash him and he stands up about the food? Are you got to be kidding me? But this is, catch this, this is important. What is the big deal about food? Because that's what's something that specifically God's word spoke to him as a young Jewish boy. It's in the word. First of all, this meat offered to Babylonian gods and idols could have may, felt like he was participating in kind of a form of a worship service. How about the dietary laws from Leviticus and Deuteronomy? That would expressly, forbid most of this menu that he was being offered. The Babylonians didn't distinguish between unclean or clean foods. And in fact, they would have been feeding him pork and horse meat. Remember, there's no bacon. There's no bacon in his diet, right? And so that would have been a problem. There, by the way, there's no kosher vending machines either. No kosher vending machines. Then when you shared this kind of a meal, there was a thing called implied relationship that took effect when you shared a meal with someone. In fact, according to Eastern tradition, to share a meal meant to commit oneself to a friendship. So we're not exactly told what reason for not wanting to eat the food is, but we know that he, his plans, he goes vegan, whole plant, uh, go vegan, plant-based, whole food. I don't know, maybe not that far. But he's certainly not going to be that hometown buffet kind of guy either. And so the bottom line is he wants vegetables and water. And if you've ever done that, that's quite a, quite a feat, all right? So we do know that Daniel is taking a huge risk, right? It's showing courage because he's going to honor God no matter what. And I say that's taking a risk because Nebuchadnezzar, we've seen, he's a hot-headed, impulsive guy. 
He's not a guy you want to mess around with. Uh, just check out 2 Kings 25. I don't have time to, to go into it, but the bottom line, he kills his own sons out of bloodthirstiness, right? But Daniel didn't care. He's not going to defile himself. And so there's a couple of principles uh, at, 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 um, that we can find from this section. You've got to choose your battles carefully, friends. Some of you just like to fight about everything. Choose your battles, you know. Daniel doesn't make a stink about everything. He doesn't, doesn't make a stink about the name change or his course of study. And then win them over. Don't fight them. Notice he has somehow already endeared himself to the chief of the eunuchs, the, the head steward, the head guy. He had earned the right to have an audience with him by his good character, work ethic, etc. previous to this. And so he, we learn one thing. If you're going to stand up to the culture, we're going to win people over not only by the soundness of our arguments, but also by the attractiveness of our lives. A friend of mine, Dave Fassold, gave me that. We will win people over not only by the soundness of our arguments, but by the attractiveness of our lives. You've heard it this way, it's better with honey than vinegar. Are we going to be winsome, or we're going to kind of be warring with people? Well, there's a reluctance of this guy in verse 10. The chief of the eunuch says to Daniel, hey, I fear that the king who signed me this food and drink is going to see you and your condition is not going to be good. And man, that would endanger. And he says, it will endanger my head. What's, is he going to get a headache? No, it means like if this doesn't go well, I end up at the guillotine. So the superintendent thinks he's going to get executed if these guys don't get it together. And if they get skinny and, and get sick, this is a bad deal. So Here's what Daniel recommends. Very ingenious in verses 11 to 14. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test yourself for 10 days. Give us the vegetables. Give us our diet. Give us the water. We won't do the wine. We won't do uh, the fatty meats. And then let our parents compare us, you know, a taste test, and then let's compare. Let's bring us out and, and see what you see, and then judge accordingly. So, you know, really, we tend to either want to fight people or we just capitulate. So I think I want to give you four ways we deal with the culture. You know, you can just compromise. You just capitulate. And you just say, uh, we just got to get along. We got to be tolerant of everything. And we just drift away. Or we can condone the culture and accept all these alternative choices that clearly aren't a part of God's word. And we deconstruct our faith. That's not a, a way to do it. Or we can condemn the culture by yelling louder, accusing wildly, pounding the Bible harder. I don't think that's the way. I think Daniel got it right. Confront it. Stand firm, but confront with love, speaking the truth in love, finding common ground, engaging in a winsome dialogue. So he takes the last option. And guess what? The 10 days it works. He's now, think about it. He's given up kind of the, the training table with steak Filet mignon, steak at Mastro's for this veggie protein shake approach. This, this is tough, but he does it. Now, here's another little point. If you want to win somebody over and they're not convinced, just say, hey, let's just try it. Don't have to do this forever. Kind of like Josh is saying, hey, just try a life group, you know, for, you know, for the year, and then we can mix it up if it doesn't work. And so 
This risk-free trial approach is a pretty good way of doing business with people who are skeptical. I remember uh, when we hired Adrian as our children's director, she, she's, you know, Scott's wife, you know, should you hire a family member, all this. And as a board, we talked about, well, let's just make her a temporary interim. And we did that. Let's see what happens after six months. By the time we got with six months, she had done such a fantastic job. Nobody remembered that she was interim. And in fact, we finally said, hey, we got to just kind of quantify this. And uh, so she became full-time and she, or she became permanent. And she's been doing that job wonderfully ever since. So what were the results in verses 15 and 16? At the end of 10 days, they were better in appearance and fatter. Now, fatter means healthier because we see fat and we're like, oh, you know, no, 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 you know, body fat of, you know, 7%. So they meant healthier. And so the steward took away their fine food and gave them vegetables and water. So then comes the commendation. And you see this in verses 17 to 21. And I'll say two things. God prepared them, verse 17, and God, the king promoted them, verses 18 to 21. And for these four use, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So here's the bottom line. God supernaturally paved the way uh, because they understood things quicker, they grasped things, they remembered things, they were fluent in the languages, and this God-given empowerment would come to help Daniel later in the book when he has to decide this dream slash riddle late in later chapters. And so he was ready. They were prepared. Here's the application for us. God is preparing you right now for your next assignment. He was preparing Daniel during those three years for these coming assignments, which we won't have a chance to look at. Part B, the king promoted them, verses 18 to 21. At the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the king of the chief of the eunuchs. By the way, he's mentioned in nearly every section. This is quite the player in this, in this, this chapter. Brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure he's a little nervous about it because they've been on this three-year regimen. And the king spoke with them, and among the, all of them, none, get that circle in your Bible, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All of them, first round draft picks, so to speak. So think about this. By that time, they pass their oral exams with the king. They are fluent in the language. They converse. They don't need a translator. They immerse themselves in learning that language. It kind of brings me to shame. I've been going to Mexico for 40 years, and I have not learned that language like I should have. But they not only met expectations, they exceed them. Therefore, they look at verse 19, they stood before the king, verse 20, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them, he found them 10 times better than everybody else. And then there's a little verse that nobody picks up on in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first king, the first year of King Cyrus. So Nebuchadnezzar declares him the smartest of the bunch. But here's something you know with between the end 20 and verse 21, how many years is that? He outlives Nebuchadnezzar. It's over 70 years he's in the king's service. This is unbelievable. And then he goes on to serve uh, King Cyrus, who is the conquering king who conquered Babylon for the Medes and the Persians. He was faithful all those years. Friends, I'm uh, embarking on uh, this new deal in my life. You know about it in a few months. 
I'm retiring, if I, I don't really believe in retiring, from full-time service after 43 years of ministry. And that has been one of my dreams is I want to be faithful. I want to finish well. And, and we're coming on the home stretch. And you pray with me about that. But here's the deal. God rewarded that faithfulness. That's how Daniel had staying power all those years. And then I want to give a conclusion that you would say, where did you get this from this text? Think about all that they go through. And how did these guys pull it off? How did Daniel and his three friends pull it off? Because they relied on one, one another. They hung together. They, they were a life group, of, to steal Josh's term, right? They, he found a small group of friends, and they studied together. They prayed together. They go through the furnace literally together. You'd see that in the rest of Daniel. And one in the future, this small group would go on to one day rule together to change the course of an entire nation. So when you live in Babylon and the world is mocking your faith, I can give you the final principle. You're going to survive. No, you're going to thrive if you live in community. We need each other. You need that support system if you're going to thrive in Babylon. You need to do life together with people of like mind if you're going to thrive in Babylon. And if we're going to stand tall, we need each other to thrive in Babylon. Thank you so much. Just pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, this is a sobering text. As I look at it, I am reminded how difficult the task was for Daniel to stand tall and to thrive in his Babylon. Lord, may we glean these principles. May we apply them in our own life so we too can thrive in our modern day Babylon. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, how high would I climb mountains If the mountains were where you hide Oh, how far I'd scale the valleys If you grace the other side Oh, how long have I chased rivers From lowly seas to where they rise Against the rush of grace descending From the source to its supply Cause in the highlands and the heartache You're neither more or less inclined I would search and stop at nothing You're just not that hard to find in my way You're the summit where my feet are So I will praise you in the valleys all the same No less God within the shadows No less faithful when the night leads me astray You're the heaven where my heart 
Thank you so much for worshiping with us today, ABF Online, and those of you who are watching this whenever you're seeing this. We know that our God is in control. We know that we can thrive in Babylon, and we know that God has prepared you to make a difference in your life. But we do it, right? We do it all together. We need each other. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.